Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. We've got a bunch of readings today, so if you follow with me on the screen. We're starting in Genesis and then going to the Song of Solomon and then finishing in 1 Corinthians. So this is Genesis... uh, Chapter 2, 21 to 25, and then 3, 8 to 11. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And we're in Song of Songs, chapter 2. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among maidens. As an apple tree among the trees of the wood, So is my beloved among young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his intention toward me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. Oh, that his left hand were under my head, and that his right hand embraced me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, By the gazelles or the wild does, do not stir up or awaken love until it is ready. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is well for a man not to touch a woman. But because of cases of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a set time to devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This I say by way of concession, not of command. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has a particular gift from God, one having one kind and another a different kind. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, I have too much to say this morning. It's too long. I'm just warning you in advance. Um, And uh, we will have, uh, hopefully, time for some questions. Um, But when we get to the point where I think it's the right time for questions, I might just say, how are you feeling? Do you want to do some questions now? Or do you want to just like have questions later on after the service if you've got them? We'll see how we go. Um, But anyway, let's get into it. Uh, We've noted several times during this series uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ himself said that the truth will set you free. 
Uh, it's hard to think of an area of life in the modern world where that seems as ludicrous to people as the area of sex and sexuality. Uh, the whole topic is fraught. Uh, it's fraught because the sexual orthodoxies of the day are held up as unchallengeable and because the Christian sexual ethic is derided as unreasonable, unlivable and oppressive. Uh, and you know what the truth is, that Christians have uh, sometimes, perhaps even often, made such a hash of talking about sex and sexuality that they've managed to make it a pretty easy case to prosecute. But even more than that, the issue is fraught because this area of our lives so often carries with it some degree of shame. For many of us, sex and sexuality goes hand in hand with shame, and so we're going to proceed very cautiously this morning, and of course, if you need to step out at any point, or if you want to follow things up at all uh, with me or Louisa or someone else uh, after the service, of course, you're very welcome to, that's perfectly fine. Uh, the traditional Christian sexual ethic, the sexual ethic that Jesus teaches and the scriptures teach, uh, is rightly summarised as the call to sexual activity within male and female marriage and celibacy outside of that arrangement. Uh, and this kind of teaching has come in for special criticism since the uh, so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s. Uh, sexually liberated secular moderns know that your body is yours, that sex is at once uh, both a, it's a natural appetite to be satisfied and also somehow an expression of your deepest identity. And therefore, no one has the right to tell you what you can and can't do with it. Your body is yours, do what you like with it, so long as you don't harm anyone else in the process. And with easy access to contraception and abortion, we have the, the technology actually to sustain that freedom in a new kind of way in the modern world. And so, in the secular Western world, uh, sex and sexuality has become a key area of personal and social liberation. Increasingly, though, there are those who wonder if the sexual revolution isn't actually all that we've been led to believe. There's a growing chorus of secular feminists, particularly, who argue that the sexual revolution has been especially bad for women. Sexual permissiveness and freedom have been achieved very much on men's terms. Revelations of sexual abuse in Hollywood and pretty much everywhere else have alerted us to the fact that one person's sexual revolution, uh, sexual liberation, may well be another person's sexual nightmare. And so consent has become the catch cry in our culture. But even that seems not to go far enough since consent turns out not to be so easy to judge, especially if you're in the backseat of a car after a few beers or at a party after a few vodka cruises. And even more so if there's a significant power imbalance or the implicit threat of violence. The conversation in our culture around consent already seeks to reintroduce a set of proper boundaries to our sexual expression. But some contemporary feminist writers want to go even further. Uh, there's a new book out uh, by Louise Perry. She's a state, uh, sorry, a statesman, that's not right, a columnist for The New Statesman. Uh, and she's just this year published a book called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Uh, she argues on scientific, historical, and sociological grounds that secular society needs to return to what she calls, quote, the, monog the monogamous marriage model. Uh, here's a quote from her book. I don't have it up on the screen for you, sorry, so you'll have to just listen to my voice as I read it to you. Uh, Louise Perry writes that while the words this morning, monogamous marriage principle, the monogamous, monogamous marriage, <laughs> I'm just going to, you know, marriage, you know what I mean, monogamous marriage model. There we go. <sighs> Let's try that again. Anyway, she writes that it's relatively unusual but also, she says, spectacularly successful. She writes that when monogamy is imposed on a society, it tends to become richer. It has lower rates of both child abuse and domestic violence, since conflict between co-wives tends to generate both of those things. 
Birth rates and crime rates both fall, which encourages economic development, and wealthy men deny the opportunity to devote their resources to acquiring more wives, instead invest elsewhere in property, business, employees, and other productive endeavors. She continues, the technology shock of the pill led sexual liberals to the hubristic assumption that our society could be uniquely free from the oppression of sexual norms and could function just fine. The last 60 years have proved that assumption to be wrong. We need to re-erect the social guardrails that have been torn down. And in order to do that, we need to start by stating the obvious. Sex must be taken seriously. Men and women are different. Some desires are bad. Consent is not enough. Violence is not love. Loveless sex is not empowering. People are not products. And marriage is good. Another feminist writer making a similar case recently referred to these ideas as radical monogamy. Not so radical for Christians throughout the ages, of course. And in a world of broken sexuality, of abuse and violence and disappointment and so often shame, uh, it might just be that the traditional Christian sexual ethic might turn out to be not such a bad thing after all. However, at the same time, Christians and churches have sometimes contributed to the problem. Sex and sexuality have been portrayed as dirty and dangerous. Male sexual desire has been painted as a beast to be tamed, while female sexual desire has been diminished as somehow suspect and to be controlled. Dumb claims are often made about the differences between the sexual needs and wants of men compared to women. Sexual abuse and scandal has been ignored and covered up, and shame has been deployed to demean and control. And just like the, sexual, uh, the secular sexual revolution, it's usually, of course, hit hardest for women. So Christians are far from blameless in this area. And so what we need as we proceed this morning is twofold. We need to ask the question, what is sexuality actually about? And then to see, what does the Bible actually say to us about our sexual lives? We're going to do that under two headings this morning. Uh, firstly, the story of sexuality. And secondly, the experience of sexuality. Point one, the story of sexuality. Uh, it's possible that you've never really noticed the way that the story of Adam and Eve in the opening chapters of Genesis uh, draws attention to the theme of nakedness. Uh, at the conclusion of the creation story in Genesis chapter 2, God creates the woman as a perfect partner for the man. She's the one who's able to resolve his problem of being alone. And he's delighted. He says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for out of man this one was taken. Uh, and that forms the basic biblical rationale then for marriage. The next verse, therefore a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. Uh, already there's several features of a biblical understanding of marriage and sexuality uh, apparent in even just those few verses. Marriage is a union between a man and a woman expressing unity in diversity. Uh, it picks up on some of the themes actually that uh, I, w I wasn't here sadly, but um, that you heard from uh, Dave Bingley last week uh, about gender and the differences between men and women. Uh, men and women. Uh, marriage is a union between a man and a woman that expresses unity in diversity. It's a source of delight, and sex forms part of, the way, uh, part of that as a way of binding man and woman together as one flesh, a physical union that gives expression to the whole of life union that they have as they form a new family together. But there's another element in this story that we really need to be careful not to overlook. Uh, the final verse of that little section there in chapter 2 finishes like this. The man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. Why tell us this? Why draw our attention to the fact that the man and woman are naked and not ashamed? There are two reasons for it, I think. Firstly, it tells us that this unashamed nakedness between husband and wife is part of the solution to the problem that's raised with a man of being alone. 
But notice, secondly, that this nakedness also plays a really important role in what goes wrong as the story continues. Immediately after this, in the little section that we skipped over in our readings, the snake tempts the woman and the man to eat from the one tree that God has commanded them not to eat from. He promises that eating the fruit will bring knowledge of good and evil, and they eat, and what happens? The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The first knowledge they acquire is knowledge of their nakedness, and they rush to cover it up. And the next bit of the story highlights this, kind of ratchets it up, actually, and draws our attention to it even more closely. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Uh, nakedness, you see, is kind of central to this narrative of what's gone wrong when sin has entered the world. There's a distance now between humanity and God. The man hides himself from God because of his nakedness. And immediately God asks if the man's eaten from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Somehow that knowledge has something to do with nakedness and with shame. So there's an in, in, indirectly sexual dimension to this story from the very beginning. The story given to us to teach us about sin and about our alienation from God, who, the God who made us, is a story about bodily shame. What does that tell us about human sexuality? Uh, firstly, it suggests that the most important thing about our sexuality isn't actually sexual activity. There's the reference to one flesh in the story, of course, but the man and the woman aren't shown here in this particular passage as sexually active. Sex isn't the focus of the story. Sexuality at its most fundamental level has not to do with having sex, but with our bodies in their naked wholeness, whole people created in the body. Secondly, this little story tells us that sexuality is in some way about knowledge and more specifically than that, about being known. That's why it's connected to the man's loneliness. We feel lonely when we know that we aren't truly known or seen and we feel shame when we worry that if we were truly known or seen, people wouldn't like what they see. The man's loneliness is overcome when there's another one who sees him as he is in his fullness in his body and is delighted by what she sees. Thirdly, though, that doesn't mean that sex, sexuality actually isn't somehow about bodies, that it's really about something else and not about the body at all. Of course it's about bodies. What happens between the man and the woman here in this story, even if they aren't described in this particular scene as having sex with each other, is about more than a meaning of the minds. It's absolutely bodily and particularly about the shame-free enjoyment of one another's nakedness. We might summarise uh, that so far by saying that this section of Genesis shows us that sexuality is about being known and seen and loved in the body as a whole person. But we also learn in this story that human sexuality has gotten very quickly very messed up. There's shame now where there was no shame before. And doesn't that speak to the experience of sexuality for many of us, maybe even most of us? Most of us know some degree of shame when it comes to our sexual longings, experiences and indeed our sexual sins. This is a story of innocence lost, of nakedness that is no longer easy anymore in a way that it was in the beginning. But we also learn here something really important about the source of the problem. When the man and the woman eat the fruit, they immediately feel the need to cover up, to hide themselves from one another, to make some clothes. But when they hear God approaching, they ratchet it up even further. They run among the trees, they scatter and hide. They can't bear to be seen by God. What this is telling us is that sexuality and sex and bodies are not themselves the root of the problem here. Our relationship with God is. 
broken human sexuality, our desire to be known and loved in the bodies that God has given to us as whole people, tells us something about the distance between us and God. Uh, pretty much all of us have a, deep, uh, have a sense that uh, deep things are at stake in our sexuality and sexual experience, and this story here at the beginning of the Scriptures tells us that we're actually right about that. There is something right about the weight placed on sexuality in our culture. It matters. It tells us something about what it means fundamentally to be human beings. Particularly, it tells us that we need to be known and seen and loved as whole people, as bodily people, not just minds or personalities, but as we are in all of our wholeness. And so it's no wonder that sexuality can seem for many people like the most important part of human existence and like sex really does have the ability to offer us a kind of salvation. But neither our sexuality nor sexual activity can give us the freedom that we long for. And no sexual encounter with another person, no matter how loving or wonderful, can actually fix the problem. Our loneliness, our shame, they stem from our alienation from God. Uh, Unashamed nakedness, I think, can be experienced in marriage, but in this side of new creation, it won't necessarily be. And it certainly won't be so as easily as it seems like it was created to be in the beginning. We can't recover that original shameless innocence that the man and the woman first experienced. And so, as a result of that, sex can go very, very wrong, both within marriage and outside of it. And it can go especially wrong when we expect it to fill a void or a need that it actually just can't possibly fill. The only place that we'll find what we truly need in the end, what we've lost, giving way to shame and fear of rejection, the only place we can find it is in the very one from whom the man and the woman hide themselves. We need God to save us. We need God to uh, to heal our shame and fears. We need God to delight in us. It's no coincidence that marriage and sexual imagery is used throughout the scriptures to describe God's relationship to his people, both positively and negatively. The prophets Isaiah and Hosea cast God as a jealous husband, grieving over the sexual unfaithfulness of his bride and longing to be united to her again. Jesus describes himself as the bridegroom coming to take his bride's hand, his people's hand in marriage. And the end of all things, the new creation is depicted as the great wedding feast of the Lamb. And then you get Ephesians chapter 5, where the whole thing is just really taken up to a whole new level, and the intimate relationship between husband and wife is described as an image of the love and delight shared between Christ and his church. The kind of unashamed, naked delight that was the man and the woman's in the beginning is a foreshadowing of the unashamed and naked delight that God holds out to us as his people in Jesus. And so our sexuality points us to the deep longing that we actually all have to know and love God and to be known and loved by God. And importantly, to know and love God and to be known and loved by God in the body. To experience the love and acceptance of God fully and truly as whole persons that God has made us to be. Uh, To be seen, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 13, face to face. To know fully, even as we have been fully known. None of us can experience that fully yet, married or single, straight or gay. It's just not available to us this side of the new creation, that full knowledge. It's a hope that we wait for. A hope prefigured and experienced in a particular way in the sexual activity of marriage, but not experienced fully or finally, because all of us still wait for what Paul in Romans calls the redemption of our bodies. Full sexual satisfaction to be fully and wholly loved in our bodies is an experience that awaits us in resurrection. Let's talk about that some more. Lots of things to unpack further there. Uh, But how does this grand vision of the meaning of our sexuality help us to live well and faithfully in our sexual lives? We're going to move on to painting some very broad brushstrokes before we have uh, time for some questions. Uh, Sorry, point two, the experience of sexuality. And what I'm going to do under this heading is just to say a few things about a few topics. Nowhere near enough about any of these things. 
Um, and to be honest, I'm not even going to draw all the links for you as clearly as I might like between what we've said uh, and where that ends up in, in uh, kind of Christian sexual ethics. So we can pick it up in question time in a moment, if you like, or after the service. Uh, we're going to talk a bit about uh, singleness, a bit about marriage, a bit about sexual orientation. Uh, and then after question time, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about sexual sin. Uh, firstly, sexuality and singleness. One of the things that makes the Christian sexual ethics seem so unlivable in our context, I think, is the call to celibacy outside of male-female marriage. Uh, how could you reasonably expect someone to abstain from sex? Uh, now, if sex was merely a bodily appetite, which is the basic premise of the whole kind of Freudian approach to demystifying sexuality, or if sex is primarily a means, even the primary means, of expressing your identity, then it would be crazy to willingly accept, sex, uh, to willingly ac accept celibacy, right? But the scriptures, as we've seen already, tell us that neither of those things are true. Sexuality goes far deeper than that. It's about much more than sexual activity. It's about being loved in the body. And it draws our hearts out toward a full loving union with the God who made us. And that means that what qualifies you, really importantly, what qualifies you as a fully sexual creature is just being human, whether or not you're sexually active. It's for that reason that from the very beginning of the church, and uh, even in a different kind of way in the Old Testament, uh, Christians have held up singleness as an, an equal path to marriage. No less good, no less human. The reason is that just as fully sexual marriage points beyond itself to the ultimate union of Jesus with his people in the new creation, so singleness reminds us that even sexually active married couples have not yet reached the goal, the thing that that points toward. And so in a strange kind of way, in God's kindness and his provision and the way that he set things up, we need both marriage and singleness to actually see what it is that God has in store for his people. The experience of long-term celibate singleness uh, is not uncomplicated, of course, and our world makes it even harder in lots of ways. But the thing is that in the end, single people don't actually miss out because even marriage can only vaguely foreshadow the intimate union with Christ that he promises to all of us. What does it actually mean in, in practice? Uh, I think one way that we could better reflect this truth as a community, uh, and this is a, a word, if you like, particularly to parents who are raising kids in this, I reckon we should drop any language around uh, waiting for marriage when we talk about sex. That idea of waiting for marriage makes it sound like a life without sexual activity is somehow a second-rate way of being human, to be endured through gritted teeth until we can be released into the green meadows of married sexual ecstasy. Rubbish! It's not about waiting for something better. It's about being faithful to Jesus in our particular circumstances as we wait for the marriage feast of the Lamb. Let's think about actually the language that we use to, to teach particular young people about this. At the same time, you have to say it's just really true, and this is part of the thing that makes actually long-term singleness sometimes quite difficult. But those who are single do, in fact, forego one of the ways in which we can experience being loved in the body in this life. Uh, for that reason, a friendship is actually a really important category in the New Testament, and physical affection is also actually really important. Greet one another with a holy kiss, you know, and all of that. And so we need to be a community, actually, if we really believe that this is true, uh, that isn't socially segregated into singles and marrieds, on the one hand, and that doesn't treat singles as simply not yet marrieds, uh, but also is a community of really open affection for one another, that's happy, actually, to give one another a hug that actually really matters because we need to be loved in the body, even when it's non-sexual. Here's what we could say about that, sexuality and singleness. What about sexuality and marriage? Uh, marriage, as we've seen, uh, points beyond itself to the passionate union of Christ with his people. But because the problems of our sexuality go back to our alienation from God, being naked and unashamed together will, will never be fully realised in this life. Full sexual satisfaction awaits us in the resurrection. 
Uh, if you expect your marriage and sex within it to fit the, fix the deepest problems of your heart, then you're actually just going to be deeply disappointed and your marriage and your sex life as well will suffer as a result. Uh, so in this world, in this life, sex, even within marriage, is going to require work. Uh, Paul gives us some practical instruction about all this in 1 Corinthians 7 and uh, that, cha- that little section that uh, Veli read for us. And it actually kind of just blows up some of the dumb things that Christians say about sex sometimes. Uh, firstly, what you see in that little section from 1 Corinthians 7 is that Paul puts pleasure at the centre of married sex. He quotes back to the Corinthians their own proverb about, and the proverb that he quotes is really about restricting sex in marriage to procreation. And he says, no, 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 sex is about delighting in one another's bodily wholeness. Yes, it's about procreation, but it's not only about that. It's actually about delighting in one another. Secondly, Paul does something really important by placing male and female sexual desire on the same level. Let me read for you a little bit again from 1 Corinthians 7 verse 3. The husband should give her, uh, his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Talk about a sexual revolution in the ancient world. In Paul's day, a woman's sexual desire was always something dangerous that had to be carefully controlled and monitored and kept within very, very strict limits. Women were always kind of sexually promiscuous or at least at risk of it, but it was not good. It was bad. No, women's sexuality, that's, that's a bad thing. Not so in Christian marriage, says Paul. The wife has precisely the same rights to sexual satisfaction in her marriage as her husband does, and both husband and wife are equally called to take the sexual appetites of their spouse seriously. It's hard to to actually overstate how wild it is in Paul's context in the ancient world to say that a wife has authority over her husband's body. Nuts. But there's a radical equality here. Uh, Sometimes this passage, bizarrely, is read in such a hopelessly lopsided way that it's used to tell women that if they don't give their husband enough sex, he will turn to porn or adultery and it will somehow be her fault. What a horrific lie that is. Every partner in a marriage is responsible, of course, for their own sexual faithfulness. And the very point here is not actually that women have a responsibility to their husbands, end of story, but actually that they have responsibilities to each other. Both husband and wife have sexual responsibilities toward one another. That's all I'm going to say for now about sexuality and marriage. Uh, what about sexuality and orientation? What does all this have to say about sexual orientation, particularly about same-sex attraction? Uh, there's a few things to say uh, here, and again, it's nowhere near as much as could or needs to be said. Uh, firstly, the scriptures are actually just very straightforwardly clear that same-sex sexual activity is, in fact, sin, that it's out of bounds. It's not the way that God has designed us to be. And no amount of revisionist reading of the scriptures has been able to work around that fact convincingly at all. Uh, The reason, when it comes down to it, actually, is theological. That the maleness and femaleness that underpins our human sexuality points to the union between God and his people, a unity indifference. And same-sex sexual activity fails to model that unity indifference. (coughs) Secondly, though, we have to say that same-sex sexual attraction is not the same thing as same-sex sexual activity. When the scriptures call same-sex attracted people, uh, what what the scriptures call same-sex attracted people to is the same kind of celibate singleness that unmarried heterosexual people are called to. And so it's really important to say, really, really loud and clear, that same-sex attraction does not automatically make someone sinful. 
uh, and that the sin of same-sex sexual activity is no different in kind to the sin of opposite-sex sexual activity outside of marriage. Churches have done a bloody shocking, shocking job of teaching about this over the years. Like, we've really, we've really made a mess of this. We really, really have. Lots of damage has been done, and shame often has been weaponized against same-sex attractive people. That's not okay. That's not the way of Jesus. That's abominable. And let me just say loud and clear, there's no place for that here among us. Uh, I'm going to pause there for a moment and see if there are any questions that people want to raise before I come back and just uh, speak briefly at the end about uh, sexual sin particularly. Um, are there any questions you want to ask? Uh, have we gone on too long already and you want to just, you know, finish off? There's some questions here. Yeah, it's a question from... Yeah, so I think uh, the question of abortion is a, is a, um, a related issue culturally in some ways, uh, but a separate issue in, in lots of other ways. And, you know, part of the reason I think that, that churches don't talk about it as much as we might, I think it's, fair, it's straightforward to say um, uh, a Christian position is that uh, uh, a fetus is a person, um, and so abortion is always killing, is always killing a person, right? Uh, and yet it's complicated for a lot of reasons, and complicated particularly because the experience of, of a woman who chooses to have an abortion is, is really straightforward. There's lots of research, actually, including um, research done in Australia, uh, that says that a very high proportion of women who choose to have an abortion have experienced um, uh, pressure and, and even bullying from men in their lives to do it. Right? It's, it's, it's a really, the actual experience of, of choosing to have an abortion is very complicated. Uh, and so I think the Christian ethical position on that is very, very straightforward, actually. Um, but how you deal with people who are in that circumstance, in that situation, is much more complicated and needs to be, be um, dealt with very carefully. We talk much more about abortion, not, not, the, not the, the topic of, of today's thing, um, uh, but there is, a, there is a sense in which the sexual revolution, particularly in the Western world, has been connected to abortion being much more readily available um, so that sex is not connected to procreation. In, in, you know, the, we kid ourselves that we've broken that link somehow. So. Yeah, yeah, and there's a, and you know, so there's lots of um, lots of really helpful and fascinating um, Christian bioethics written around what forms of contraceptive actually actually do fit with our with our model of, of what we think is going on in, in conception as as Christians, and you know, there's lots more to say about that too. I can see Jess, but Jono had his hand up first, I think, as well. There's always more to say about, it, isn't there? Yeah, I think mutuality is a much better word than equality, um, just for what it's worth. Um, John is asking whether, um, particularly in that stuff from one Corinthians seven, whether. Um, mutuality between husband and wife in their, in their sexual life together is a better word than, than um, equality. I think that's probably true. Um, uh, a few thoughts about that. Um, one is just to, to reiterate, um, again, as we've been talking about how uh, the unashamed nakedness of sexuality in a marriage um, won't work quite the way that it's supposed to in, in this life, right, in a fallen world. And that means it's going to require work. And so I think often there will be mismatched expectations in a marriage. There will be mismatched desires in a marriage. And you've got to work on that. Actually, you've got to talk about it. And, and um, I don't think what Paul is saying here about the mutuality between husband and wife actually means that husband says, I would like to have sex now, and wife is obliged just to say, sure. Actually, it doesn't, doesn't actually quite work like that in practice. Um, and so there's just a, you know, partially that's because uh, sex becomes... Uh, in the Christian framework, not about an appetite to be satisfied, but about an opportunity uh, to help somebody else enter into 
unashamed nakedness, right? And so part of your job as a husband and part of your job as a wife is to be creating the kind of relationship together where, where you hold that out to the other person. And that's, that's going to mean actually that, that you become de-centred a, a little bit often in kind of your, your conversations and your practice around sex as well. Um, this is a good opportunity. I mean, a wave a book at you all that I haven't read all of yet, but this is a book that's kind of been doing the rounds at the moment a little bit. It's called The Great Sex Rescue. The Lies That You've Been Taught and How to Recover What God Intended. It's by a woman from the United States who, with a, a little team of hers of social researchers, has interviewed uh, 20,000 evangelical women in the US uh, about their sex lives, basically. And, and it pretty much, it, like, it tries to do really what, um, what this whole series is about, to actually go, what are some of the things that um, women particularly, though not only women, have been told about um, sex and their sex lives and their responsibilities and all these kinds of things through teaching in churches that turns out to actually just be kind of crap and what, what do we do about that and particularly um, it, it wants to recapture a vision for um, as John puts it mutuality actually um, to kind of say you know it, it turns out that actually this, the, the statistics say that that yes there's probably it's probably the case that men uh, have um, uh, somewhat uh, stronger um, libido sexual drive but actually it, it's much it's much less Male dominated statistically than you, than you might think, uh, and so how do we kind of recenter just the the pleasure of wives in their sexual lives together as well? Anyway, a really interesting book. I haven't finished reading it yet, um, but but actually I think really helpful. Um, you might like to um, pick it up sometime and have a look at it as well. You can check out my copy if you like at some point as well. Um, I just want to say um, uh, because. Uh, this is one of the things that I cut out of a much longer version of this sermon, believe it or not. Um, uh, but I actually just think it's really important. Um, and I said a little bit about it in the stuff from 1 Corinthians 7. But just that um, our culture, for whatever reason, Christian culture particularly, and the same as it was when Paul was writing the ancient days, really does seek to diminish um, the idea that a woman might have sexual desires that are just kind of good and okay. And I just wanted to, you know, remind you of the little section that I didn't get to talk to you, but that we read from um, from uh, Song of Songs as well, uh, which is this beautiful erotic love poem, right? Um, in the in the scriptures, um, which just kind of celebrates the goodness of sex, and particularly, it's almost all from the perspective of the woman, right? The woman is the one who actually uh, just there, right in the middle of the scriptures, is saying, "Gosh, I have this just deep." Overpowering desire um, for uh, the man who I'm, who I, who I want to marry. Uh, even just like to unashamed, like it's, to be honest, it's not, um, it's not really all that clever in terms of euphemism. What happens in the Song of Songs? It's pretty straightforward. Um, I delighted in, I delighted in his fruit. She says, <laughs> you know, you don't need to pretend that that's not not what it says. It is right, and it just, it really just kind of goes women's sexual desire for their husbands every bit as as good, as straightforward, nothing, nothing weird here about that. And it's just, it's right there in the scriptures anyway. And I think that we often we live in the kind of world that seeks to diminish that a lot. I think that's important. <laughs> there are some children in the room, and so I'm not going to, uh, you know, yeah, but um, our, um, Laura Southam, who many of you know, who um, lives with Alison and I, um, she's over at St. Oswald's in Haverfield. Um, she uh, uh, is a, a scholar of Hebrew, actually, and she said to me, uh, that the um, classes she had at the University of Sydney, Secular University, um, about Hebrew, particularly doing a subject about Song of Songs, by far the most awkward university tutorial she has ever been in, she says. Anyway, so there you go. Uh, Jess, you had a question, and then we might, we might finish with this one, if that's all right. <laughs> yep. Uh, it's a good question. Uh, why, do we, why do we talk about the, the same issue of same-sex 
sex and sexual attraction so much in the church if it's not actually a worse sin? Uh, to be honest, I think the answer to that largely um, lies in our culture rather than in the church, that it's become um, such an important uh, area of um, personal and social liberation in our society. And so, and so the church is going to speak into that in various ways. The, the biggest problem I think that churches often have talking about this is not, not that we talk about it, but how we talk about it. Um, and I think that's a, 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 you know, often a big problem. Churches sometimes have had, um, particularly as our culture has secularised quite rapidly in the last 40, 50 years, um, have been often very bad at just kind of understanding the world around them, I think. And so we end up playing catch-up and we say dumb things that we probably wouldn't say if we'd thought about it for a few more minutes. Um, and uh, so I think that's, that's, often, that's often the problem. Um, it's become kind of a, a flashpoint in the Anglican Church globally and has been for 20 years now, actually. Um, and the reason for that is that um, some uh, Anglican churches around the world have begun to uh, quite openly and, um, and uh, proudly, if I can use that, it's a bad word to use, but um, to, to ordain as um, ministers and bishops um, men particularly who are in openly practising same-sex relationships. Um, and the, the position of the vast majority of Anglicans around the world uh, has been that actually the, the scriptures tell us that that's not okay. Actually, that that's not okay. And so it's not all right that churches are doing this in various places. Uh, I think the, um, the, the split, as it has been called, which is not, uh, not quite the right word because, uh, as I mentioned before, the Anglican Church um, of Australia is still a thing and the Sydney Anglican Diocese is still a part of the Sydney Anglican Church. There's a new thing that's been begun, but there has, there's been no splitting at this point. Anyway, that's a story for another time. Um, but really what that's about actually in the end is freedom of conscience, is my read. So the one, um, uh, we're not live streaming here this morning, so I'm happy to say this, um, but it's a story that I only know third, fourth, fifth, sixth hand, and so, you know. Um, but the one church so far that has left the Anglican Diocese of Brisbane to join the new Diocese of the Southern Cross is a church where the minister there um, went to a meeting of all the clergy in that diocese and the Archbishop of Brisbane basically said, obviously we're all going to be okay with same-sex marriage in the church eventually, and so if you don't really believe in that, you don't really belong here. Uh, he went to his archbishop and said, uh, not only um, is that quite hurtful to hear that if I have a different opinion on that, I can't be part of this church really anymore, uh, but also I actually do think that you're wrong about the scriptures, and I, I, and I want to call you to repentance from that. And the archbishop of Brisbane's response was to say, I'm revoking your license to minister in this diocese. Uh, and so there's a freedom of conscience issue there, actually, which is a large part of this. There's no, there's no sense in which anyone at the moment is, is trying to, like, um, uh, push out uh, more theologically liberal Anglicans from the Anglican Church of Australia. We don't have that power, actually. That's not how the Anglican Church works anyway. Uh, but they do want to provide a space for freedom of conscience, actually, where, where ministers in dioceses where, um, uh, where the leadership have moved in that, um, in that direction and just, you know, um, I you know, straightforwardly think of the wrong direction, a misunderstanding, misreading of the scriptures at that point, um, that we want to provide space for people who feel conscience-bound that they can't be a part of that structure anymore to go and have somewhere else to go. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's complicated because uh, sexuality is such a hot-button issue in our culture and society that, that it gets made very quickly in the media, especially into, this is because they really hate gay people and what gay people do in the privacy of their own homes. No, that's, that's not actually what it's about. That's a, that's a particular flashpoint, but the issues are different and deep to that. More to say about that as well. I don't know if that even answers your question. I'm just, probably not. Yeah. Do you wanna, do you wanna, I mean, you can if you figure out. 
Someone did ask me this morning um, in response to the uh, stuff going on in the Anglican Church this last week, um, does this mean that if a non-Christian gay married couple who have some degree of wanting to find out something about Jesus and are spiritually seeking, that they came to our church, we would say, no, you're not allowed to be here? No, of course not, 100% not. Because what they need actually mostly is not uh, to reform their sexual lives, but to know Jesus, right? And so, and so of course they're welcome here. And there will be conversations down the track if they become Christians that will be difficult conversations about what does this mean actually for your life in all kinds of areas. Uh, but of course they're welcome. Of course we want them to know Jesus. And actually there are other things that are going to be at least equally as important as reforming their sexual lives in their life if they become Christians. Last one, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yep. Um, I think, again, because um, what this is connected to is actually deeper issues um, often of kind of just um, how we read the scriptures and those kinds of things. Um, there are theological implications. Um, I, I think there probably is a sense in which... Um, uh, Man, I really hate to put, I really hate to talk about practicalities in re, in relation to a hypothetical, if you know what I mean. Uh, it's always so difficult. Um, but, you know, churches where that has been the case that I've um, been connected to in the past, for example, have said that um, that someone in that situation, um, just because of what what this church and its leadership believe is, is true to the scriptures, um, might say that uh, a couple in that situation um, wouldn't uh, be asked to lead a fellowship group or something like that, for example, because there's a there's a, um, a godliness of life and understanding of the scriptures issue we think there. Um, but I think there'd be very few areas of the life of our church that they wouldn't still be just equally welcome in. If that makes sense, it becomes a, it becomes a really it becomes a really difficult area. We as uh, human people um, need to make. Um, uh, draw lines around various things in various ways, and we all do that in all kinds of ways, and, but this area particularly of sexuality is one uh, where that's incredibly hard to do because of uh, the way that our culture actually has tied it to kind of, again, I'm going to say personal and, and social liberation, um, and so we find it really hard to draw lines around these things and it becomes pastoring very difficult as well. Oh, I don't know if that helps at all. Um, yeah. Do feel free to come talk to me more if you've got questions about any of that stuff. I'm very happy to talk it through as well. Um, I'm going to wrap up, and I want to uh, do uh, something very briefly, which is just to talk a little bit about um, sexuality and sin. Um, as, I, as we've been talking about, um, our uh, sexual lives often carry with them um, real degrees of shame, actually, um, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, and uh, we want to, you know, remember that that shame actually stems um, from our alienation of God at, at the root cause, actually. Uh, and so I just want to say um, a few things about um, uh, sexual sin, for both for those who have been sexually sinned against and for those who actually have sinned sexually. Now, our sexual sins aren't worse sins. Uh, they're not less forgivable sins than other sins. And throughout the New Testament, really interestingly, there are lists of sinful behaviours and attitudes that include sexual sin along with gossip and greed and being disobedient to one's parents. <coughs> But sexual sin, despite the fact that it's not a worse kind of sin or a less forgivable sin, is, I think, uniquely able to bring with it a deep sense of shame for us. Uh, so I want to say a word, as I said, um, both to those of you who've been uh, actually victims of sexual sin and those who've uh, themselves engaged in sexual sin. Firstly, uh, to those who know actually just what it is to be sexually mistreated, uh, there's this beautiful verse I want to read to you from uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, where Paul's talking about a Christian sexual ethic, and he writes this. He says, in this matter, in the matter of our sexuality, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister, 
And he gives us a reason for that. He says, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. What's that saying to uh, those of you who have been wronged or taken advantage of in this way, uh, that the Lord is an avenger in these things? It simply means this, actually, that Jesus hates what has been done to you, that he hates sexual harassment, that he hates sexual assault, that he hates rape, that he hates people being pressured to do things they don't want to do, and that Jesus hates it that you've been made to feel unsafe or unclean or undesirable. He hates it. He hates it so much that he went to the cross, actually, because those things deserve death. And so no matter what has been done to you, you need to know that Jesus delights in you and that he's on your side. That's for those of you who are victims in some way of sexual sin. Secondly, to those of you who know that you have just messed up in your sexual life, uh, perhaps you've sought uh, solace in your loneliness through sexual experiences that you thought might fill up some kind of longing, or you've fallen into a pattern of pornography use, or you've made a habit of hooking up with people, you've Uh, Let something perhaps go further than you know it should have, or perhaps you've even pressured a sister or a brother to go further than they wanted to. Uh, If that's you, you need to hear this loud and clear as well, that none of that is too big for the grace of the Lord Jesus. He died for adulterers, for porn addicts, for the sexually broken, for the lonely, even actually for the abuser. Uh, Paul writes earlier in 1 Corinthians that all of these things are what some of you were, but you were washed You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. What does that mean? It means simply that no matter what you've done, Jesus will never put you to shame. Whatever shame you feel, whatever shame others might put on you, Jesus will never put you to shame if you trust in him. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. What difference does Jesus make to our experience of sexuality as we just draw to a close here? Um, What Jesus has done, what he's come to do, actually, is to overcome our shame, you see, by drawing us back into the loving embrace of the God from whom we so often want to hide ourselves. Our sexuality matters a great deal because it reminds us of our deep and good desire to be known as whole persons loved in the body. But the problems that our sexuality raises for us don't have their roots in our bodies or in sex. They have their roots in our alienation from God. Sex can't overcome that distance, Even the greatest of human lovers can't overcome that distance. We need God to overcome it. And that's precisely what Jesus has done. Uh, In Hebrews, we read these uh, really remarkable words in Hebrews chapter 12. We look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Uh, How is it that God has overcome the distance between himself and us? He did it by sending his son, our Lord Jesus, who entered into our shame and who in the body endured it to the point of death. That's what we see at the cross. That's what you see when Jesus hangs naked and bleeding on the cross. It's our shame laid bare. And Jesus made that shame his own so that we can know the love of God and be known by God and know and love him in the sure hope of a body made new and whole in his presence to share as people made whole in the everlasting joy of God. Um, Sex can't save you, but God can and God has. And he invites you even now to give your whole self to him with unashamed delight in the joy that he takes in you in the Lord Jesus by his spirit. Uh, We're going to uh, move straight actually into um, confessing our sins. Uh, And the reason that I thought it might be good to do that uh, straight after the sermon today is, you know, we've just talked about how um, sexual sin is not worse. It's not a worse kind of sin or anything like that, but it does carry deep shame with us. And if you've got shame about sex or anything else, sexuality in your life, if you've got shame about anything, what's the right thing to do with it? It's to take it to Jesus because he's dealt with it at the cross. And so that's what we're going to do right now. 
Uh, you'll see in your service sheet uh, the prayer that we're going to pray together, point 14. And I'm going to invite you just to take a moment uh, to read that uh, prayer together so you know what it is that we're going to pray, and then I'll invite us to pray it together as we bring all of these things to the Lord. Friends, we confess our sins to God because uh, nothing is too big for his grace and because he has the power to change us and make us whole again. Let's pray this prayer of confession together. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what leaves our consciences with a sense of condemnation. Set us free from a past we cannot change, Open us to a future in which we can be changed and grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. Uh, Hear what the prophet Isaiah says. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Nothing is too big for the cleansing power of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ by his blood. And so we're going to stand and sing of the blood that he's poured out as he sought us and saved us. <laughs> 